This morning we're gonna we're gonna take a few minutes and uh, share some scriptures together. Um, if you have if you want to go with us on this journey and you need message notes, the ushers have them, uh, and they, you can just raise your hand and they will give you one. They also have pens, and I, I think it's good to write down stuff when you're uh, in church. Thank you. That I like that lighting better. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think it's good to write stuff down when you're in church because I don't think it's just me that you're trying to take notes on. It's what God's trying to speak to you that hopefully I'm not the only one talking in the room, right? That God himself is speaking into your life. So um, I, I have kicked off a series a few weeks ago called I Will Survive. And it's um, the subtitle is How to Make It Through a Bad Day. And we're talking about all kinds of ways that we make it through a difficult season in our lives. In the first week, we talked about believing the right things about God. And that was really a, a, a big topic squished into a little bit of time together. And uh, then the next week, we talked about forgiveness because sometimes the, the reason we're having a bad day is other people. And uh, sometimes we, we need help forgiving people who are trying to ruin our lives or who have tried to ruin our lives. And so, so learning about forgiveness is a big deal in our second week. And now here we are. We've had a few other things happen, but here we are back to the series. And today we're going to talk about worship. Today we're going to talk about what it means to worship God through a bad day and what that means for you, for me, what, how to do it, how to engage with God in this way. Because I happen to believe that we're all wired up for this kind of activity. That, that, that God has put something in us that he wants to draw out of us for his own glory and, and for his own purpose and plan in our lives. And sometimes when you're having a bad day, it's hard to see that. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to function in that. And I think worship takes us into a, a, a new place and helps us see differently. So I want you to go on this journey with me. We're, we're going to use a couple of primary scriptures. We're going to start in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, and then we're going to go uh, later on to Acts 16. So those are kind of the two primary places. You want to get those places in your Bible, Acts 20, or Psalm 27, Acts 16. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that it comes alive. When we study it and when we share it with each other, would you have your way in our lives? Would you lead us and guide us and give us the strength and the grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 27, verse 1 is David, King David, David the shepherd boy who killed, the, killed Goliath. He's, he's the one talking here, and he writes this. And I want to highlight for you that the book of Psalms is the hymn book, the worship book of Israel. And so he's helping to write this, and lots of authors have, have contributed to the book of Psalms. But David here is saying, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? 
When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. Even if I am attacked, I will remain, what is the word? Confident. Just take your pen and underline that little phrase right there. I will remain confident. The question for us today is how do you remain confident when you're under attack? How do you remain confident when you're facing really difficult and challenging circumstances? How do you make it through that? And, and, and I think a key question here as we read David in his words saying, I'm not going to be afraid and I'm going to remain confident. I want to know what is this confidence that David has? Where does it come from? What is this bravado and, and courageous assurance that he speaks of? Where do you get that? Where does it come from? I believe that the answer is in the next verse. Here it is, verse 4. The, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is for him to get rid of my problems. Is that, the, is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. The thing I seek most is an end to the pain. The thing I seek most is that my children would just obey me. The thing I seek most is that I could fix my marriage. The thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. David is talking about this idea of being in the presence of God. Verse 5, for he will conceal me there in his presence. When troubles come, he will hide me in his sanctuary. Sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. I think there's something that happens when we do what David is talking about. And I want to be careful that we don't just define worship as what we just kind of started into here this morning. Worship is a big topic. It, it has to do with a lot of different expressions in your life. It, it, it has to do with a lot of activities where you honor God and where you put Him in the first place in your life. Okay, so, so let's not, don't, don't get confused. We're not talking about music here. But we are talking about entering into something that is unique, according to David. We are talking about entering into something that draws us together and draws our eyes upward to who God is. I, I maintain that sometimes it's hard for us to feel drawn in at church. I don't know what this is because there's so many other places that are so easy to be drawn in that have very similar characteristics one of them is a texas longhorns football game it appears 
that the Texas Longhorns football game looks an awfully lot like a church service. I don't know, have you ever been to one? I mean, their benches are worse. I mean, they sing songs, right? Everybody can sit and everybody can stand. They sing songs together that they all know. Some of them have cuss words. If you've ever been to one, be careful. That may be the one difference between, you know, one chapel and a Texas Longhorns football game. But there's all these things happening, and they go on and on like this, standing, sitting, talking to each other, singing, yelling, shouting, overjoyed. At the bottom of the barrel, what happened? And then they climb back up and see overcoming football team. It's incredible. Yes! They, hi they, they high-five strangers. They bask in the, the sorrow that they hold together when the team does lousy, which has been a lot recently. I think what we're talking about here is being drawn into something that God wired us up for. And there's a lot of ways that it comes out in other settings. And somehow we hesitate to let it come out in a church setting. So I just want to challenge you, and it doesn't have to be in a church setting where this stuff comes out. I want to convince you that worship can happen in any realm or any, any uh, arena of your life, from your, from your prayer closet to a, a, a quiet prayer at your desk. And so I want you to open up your heart to me, to, to, to what I'm saying and what God wants to say to you about what kind of worshiper you are. Because in an age of consumer worship with programmed and packaged services that you can just watch online, the question has to be asked, what are we doing here? What is this that we're engaged in? Because honesty is really a, a must. Worship is not a, a magical pixie dust that we kind of put on ourselves to escape the world. Worship is not a drug to be consumed or a buzz that we're looking for to escape something. Worship is a revelation of a person, Jesus himself. And as we look to him, we have to ask this question, is Jesus Lord over all of it? Is he just Lord over the happy times or is he Lord over the bad days too? Is he, if he's just Lord over the happy times, then you're only going to worship when it feels good. When the people who are playing the instruments get out right on the speaker and sing in your face. No, you, most of you didn't like that. But there's something, there's something that we have to settle, and Jesus kind of articulates it in John chapter 4 when he's, he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. 
spirit and truth. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking honest and supernatural worship. Not escaping or medicating pain, but instead bringing everything to the feet of Jesus and identifying fully with his experience here when he came to the earth. A gut-level honesty and a supernaturally spiritual encounter. That's part of what worship is. It's what God wants from you, and it's what God wants for you. Eugene Peterson said, people's lives are only as good as their worship. The way they worship defines a lot about their lives. Whether or not they are attentive to him or willing to be surrendered to him. If Jesus is Lord over your entire life, then worship necessarily includes the full spectrum of of our emotions and experiences. Worship has to be about all of it, not just one part of it. This is what the Psalms and the rest of Scripture teaches us. We don't just bring part of our lives to the Lordship of Christ. We're called to surrender every part. David, again, in Psalm 13, he brings a very difficult part to the Lord when he says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Remember, this is the hymn book of Israel. This is, other people are reading this and singing it. Is there a place in your life for being honest with God, being honest with other people? Jesus wants us to bring not something that's trite or superficial, but is true, honest, this is what he longs for with us, to, to, to know every part of our lives, for us to know every part of him. He says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And the enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. He's just laying it out before God. And I want you to notice that all, in many of these psalms, as they're being honest, there is a pivot. Pivot. <laughs> no. It's like when you're moving a couch. Moving a couch. Pivot. Pivot. There's a pivot. You, you make a turn when you're going through stuff like this. Pivot is where honesty takes a turn towards faith. It isn't like this now, but I believe it will be. Verse 5 in Proverbs 13, David makes a pivot. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. What? You were just talking about how it's really bad. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. All of it is worship. Psalm 84 talks about a journey it uses the word pilgrimage 
which means journey, path, hills, and valleys. He says, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who have set their minds on pilgrimage. He says, when they walk through the valley of weeping, valley of weeping, it will become a place of springs. It will become a place of refreshing. He says how joyous it is to find strength in the Lord, and he's using this pilgrimage to Jerusalem as a metaphor for the hymn book because that's how it would happen. They would make the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And, and so he's talking about this, this journey and how there's strength in taking the journey, the journey to the temple, and the psalmist mirrors life, how life works. The autumn rains, he says, bring with it blessings, and the journey increases the strength of those who will take it. Something incredible happens when we're willing to worship in the midst of the crisis. Something happens to us. When you worship through hardship, it turns the desert into an oasis. When you worship your way through disappointment, God turns the wilderness into wonder. When you are willing to worship your way through a tragedy, God turns the valley of despair into the valley of delight. Now, sometimes it takes longer than you want it to, for sure. And there is a sense at which we feel like life is unfair in those moments. In fact, this is Psalm 73. Psalm 73 he gets down to a, he's talking really all about how unfair life is and how people who don't follow God are, they just carefree and they, they get to do whatever they want and they don't seem to have any trouble. And he's so mad at them and he talks about it through this psalm and he's so angry that it seems like the burdens are all his. He's trying to follow God and it's like, ah, this seems so unfair, so not right. And then he comes down to verse 16, he says, when I tried to understand all this, I, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. See, what happened was he, he came to the sanctuary and when he entered it, he got a bigger picture. He got a greater perspective. There was a perspective from the sanctuary and it is there when, when we see God, he got a bigger picture of what was really happening. And, he, and actually, it was even better than this. He didn't just get a better perspective. He got compassion for the people that he was angry at. I maintain that it, the problem is we don't get this perspective enough because we don't worship him like this enough. I was... I'm no stranger to a dark moment in my own life. And I've tried to share some of those with you as we've gone through this series, very personal moments. It was 1996, and uh, my father-in-law, Don Duncan, who pa pastored a church right here in New Braunfels, he had planted that church. It's a church of about 800 people on a Wednesday night they're in church, they're having service, and he has a heart attack. And the heart attack is so massive that he's really dead by the time he gets to the hospital. It was no warning, it was instantaneous. 
they had what's called a widow maker, which is, a, of course, a, a terrible term, but, but it, it, his heart just exploded. And <laughs> I, was, I, w- I was on a trip with a bunch of pastors in Phoenix. They, they couldn't contact me because I didn't have my pager on. Do you remember pagers? It's like it, it was in the era where you couldn't get immediately contacted. So they had to, they, they were looking for me and tracking me down. And I remember talking to Amy and just the shock, the sense of being overwhelmed. Her dad was 49 years old. And I, 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 tr- I tr- we traveled, we went to New Braunfels. We, I remember walking in the house and um, I don't talk about this very much. I don't talk about these things very often. So when I do, it's emotional. But I, I walked in the house and I could hear the, the cries of Amy's mom, Karen, from the bedroom, agonizing, weeping. The kind of, the kind of grief stricken weeping that is like it's instantaneous you realize there's deep pain and it would come in waves in the house and 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 we were there just trying to make sense of it it didn't make any sense at all here was a man that 800 people relied on for leadership and direction he was a a two tours of a vietnam captain in the army he was tough as nails but totally loving on the inside and and people loved him and adored him and i remember sitting in the in the chair in the living room after a a 24-hour like just time period had gone on we were getting ready for the for the funeral and i was reading the the story that the newspaper the local newspaper had written about him and i just sat there and i was just like god this is not right and I remember going through the a- agonizing questions. God, if this, if this is what happens, what are we doing here? What is my faith worth? Is, and, then, and I was a young man. I, I, I w- we were about to have our second child. Amy was pregnant with Taylor. And, and I, I, I remember this, this argument I started to have in my head. Well, if this kind of thing this kind of pain can happen to any person, including me and my wife, including this family. What guarantees do I have here as a Christian? And I think all of us have been in moments where we're asking, do I have any guarantees? And the answer is yes, but not as many as you'd like. And I wrestled with God over this thing and, and what, how unfair and how wrong it was. And, and what was I going to do with this thing that was so, it, it illustrated the brokenness of our world. And it was there in those moments that I began to realize what God wanted to teach me about the brokenness that surrounds all of us and that lives in us. And there is a hope that Jesus wants to bring to us within the brokenness. If you want to talk more about that or hear more about that, you can 
listen to the first podcast of this series. But, but here's what happened. I went to the funeral, and they asked me to sing a song. So I'm there. The family's in front of me. I'm standing there at the chair, and there was a huge, long line of cars, just endless line of cars, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars, because hundreds and hundreds of people were coming to this funeral. And we went from the church to the, the graveside service, and we were, we were, everybody was gathering under a little tent. You know, it was like these little green tents that they put over the, the graveside, but it, the people just spread out, just like like crowds and crowds of people in 100-degree August heat. It was terrible. Everybody was just sweating, and they were there, and it was, you could feel the grief. You could feel the wound and the hurt. It was just so agonizing, and I was supposed to sing Amazing Grace. And so I came to time in the service, and I sang it. I just started, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. And the whole crowd started singing with me. And they just joined in. And we sang it. We sang four verses of that thing. And it was like, in that moment, people, you could feel the burden of grief lift for a moment. And people could see what was really happening here, where Don actually was, and what God wants us to look forward to with hope. It was like the whole crowd just lifted that little tent up, and it was like the presence of Jesus there, and it was overwhelming, it was consuming, it was beautiful. Changed everybody's perspective that day. You and I have to learn how to do that. It doesn't happen naturally. And so I want to talk about learning how to do it, and I want to look at Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. If you look at, look at their story, they'd, they'd had this, this altercation with a man who had lost money because his slave could no longer predict the future because Paul had cast the demons out of this woman. <laughs> I know, crazy story, huh? Go back and read it, Acts 16. Paul cast the demons out of this woman. She could no longer sort of do her hocus pocus. And, she, and, the, and the slave owner, her, her owner, starts losing money. And he gets angry and he starts stirring up a crowd. And s Paul and Silas get into danger here. Here they are in verse 22. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. See the scene. Imagine it. Imagine yourself in prison and no cable TV. <laughs> Imagine yourself in stocks, bloodied, beaten. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, why, why, why do you think they were singing? What do you, why, why, why were they singing these songs? What do you think motivated? Do you think, do you think they were thinking, maybe if we sing some songs, God will bust us out of here? I don't think, I don't think that's what they were thinking. Do you think 
Do you think there was something going on inside of Paul and Silas that made them believe they had to sail because people were listening? They were aware that they were listening. But my suspicion is that they were singing out of some deeper conviction that had to do with a resurrected Savior who they had seen die and then be raised from the dead. I think they were singing because their world had changed and they knew that even if they died in that prison cell, that God would raise them up again. There would be a day. I think they realized who they were and who God is, and they were committed to that, and so they were doing the only thing they knew to do in a terrible, horrible situation, pray and sing. Verse 26 says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. What is that? <laughs> all the prison doors are open and all the prisoners stay. <laughs> yeah, there's a miracle going on here. He says, uh, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, what must I do to have what you have here in this moment? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house, in his house. And that hour, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds then immediately he and all his household were baptized the jailer brought them into the house his house and set a meal before them he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household what an incredible idea I want you to understand that the true essence of worship is found in the crisis the true essence of worship is found in the crisis it's in the trying of our faith because it is there that we decide whether or not we will trust him. Martin Luther said famously, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. That kind of hurts. Do we come in here and just sing the songs and they're just really lies to us or is there a deeper conviction? See, I'm asking you to mine for the truth in your own soul Paul and Silas had a deep conviction that God's power was greater than anything they would face. Could it be that the jailer was saved not by witnessing the earthquake, but by what he witnessed before the earthquake? How do we worship honestly then? How do we, how do we worship God in this way? Because the first people of God, they... The first God followers, they were so full of this confidence and love for God that they expressed it in singing and clapping and dancing and lifting hands and bowing down and shouting and playing musical instruments. Here's just a short list. And I want you to understand, this is a list of ideas that are biblical. 
that God has given to us in, a, in the story. And God's people engaged in this, these kinds of activities. All right, I'm just going to read through them. I'm going to go quick, so you've got to write quick, all right? Expressions of praise and worship in the scripture. The lifting of hands. Did you know that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, I want everyone everywhere to lift innocent hands towards heaven and pray without being angry or arguing with each other. Clapping our hands. Psalm 47.1, come everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. Standing, Exodus 33.10, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of their tent. Standing. It's a thing. You stand, it's like this honoring thing, kneeling or bowing. Kneeling or bowing, Psalm 95.6 says, come let us bow down and worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker singing exodus 15 21 and miriam sang this song sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously he has hurled both horse and rider into the sea that's pretty awesome musical instruments psalm 150 3 through 5 says praise him with the sounding of the trumpet praise him with the harp and the lyre praise him with timbrel and dancing praise him with stringed instruments and pipe praise him with the clash of cymbals praise him with resounding cymbals dancing is also here, 2 Samuel 6, 14-15, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets, shouting. Psalm 66, we know you do, Dad. Tell everyone on this earth to shout praises to God, sing about his glorious name, honor him with praises. Shouting is a thing. It's not just a thing for your favorite it's not just a thing for your favorite team. It's not just a thing to do in a bar when the music's really loud. It's not just a thing to do at a concert. There's something else that you've got to realize God has wired you up for. And you, you and I, we keep doing what he's wired us up for in other venues, but somehow we refrain. We don't know how. We don't know what to do. A.W. <laughs> Tozer, brilliant author and writer, he said, any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. <laughs> See, I, I, think we, I, think we have to, I think we have to open our eyes to what God has asked from us because he knows what's best for us. There's a story that I love to tell. I've told it here lots of times. It's about taking my second son on a roller coaster. And I shove him kind of through the line. He wants to escape. He doesn't want to go on the roller coaster. But I push him. I take him through the line. He's about to cry as he gets into the seat. I'm like praying, Jesus, please make this work out for me. Help him to like it. Because I know he wants to, but he's scared, and I'm pushing him into the light. He sits down in the seat. I look over. We pull that thing down. I look over, and he's got a tear right here. <laughs> he's like 10 years old. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like oh, Jesus, help me. Help, help him. And we start to climb up. He's like, Dad, I don't want to do this. I'm like, it is too late now. We're moving. We're in. Finally, it blasts us out of the, this cannon-like thing. It's called the Hulk at Universal Studios. And we blast out of that thing. And I look over, and he's going, yeah. <coughs> we wrote it three more times that day. After we got out of the 
after we got out of the roller coaster, I, I looked him straight in the eye and said, Taylor, I want you to remember this. Dad knows what you need. <laughs> Dad knows best. And, and there's something that we have to get about worship that is like this. You're going to love it. It's called whole person worship. I want you to see this. Just a couple more scriptures here. Whole person worship. Mark 12, 28 and 30 is the story about Jesus being asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every, all your, everything that's inside of you, your heart, the center of your being, your intellect, your mind, your emotions, your soul, all that you are, and your strength. And he talks about it, and then he says there's another one that's just like it. It's love your neighbor as yourself, which is another set of activities that are worship to God in the caring for your neighbor. But here's the thing. We try, it seems like we try to, like, pull this apart, and we try to worship God in just, like, one way because that's the way we like it. And I think... I, I want to I highlight this. Do you know what happens to your body when you separate your body from your heart? Yes, you're dead. That's right. That's exactly right. You die. There is no separating these things out. There is no hiding your emotions. They will spill out at some point. You keep trying to stuff them down in there. All, every psychologist, every, every sociologist will tell you they will, they will come out somewhere, and usually in a bad way. God wants heads, heart, and hands. He wants it all. The goal of the scriptures, even the Old Testament, before Jesus was always longing, God was always longing for the hearts of his people, for the obedience of his people. And so I want, I want to highlight this for you, that, that it, in, it, it includes all of it, your mind, your soul, your emotions, your heart, your physical strength, the way the Bible asks us to worship, the way it, the way it draws us into his presence, it identifies a way in which we come to him. Now, let me clarify, these are not have-tos. You are not unsaved <laughs> if you refuse to dance in a worship service. It's, who are we kidding? It's not really dancing. It's more like just jumping. But listen, it's not a have to. It's a get to. It's not a have to. It's a get to. And I want to highlight these three things for you. Number one, expressive worship is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. There's something that happens when we come to this communion table. We are dealing with something physical that is representing something deeply spiritual and powerful and sacred. It is bread and wine. It is the cup, and it is this bread that illustrates the blood and the body of Jesus. But isn't it interesting? When you come, when you do this activity, very often there's a moment where because you hold that bread and because you, you dip it in that cup there is a imagery there is a sense of god's presence 
that is close. We just had baptisms down at, at um, Barton Springs uh, a few weeks ago. And there is something powerful that happened because we decided to take people into water. Right? And, 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 and they went under the water. Is it the water that saves them? No, it's not. That's not, it's, that's, that's, that's not what changes their heart. But the, the activity does something to demonstrate the spiritual reality. But something more than that happens, which leads to number two, which is physical actions mixed with faith have spiritual repercussions. Always. And so good physical actions create good spiritual repercussions in your life. You want to stay home and uh, watch television all day? That's not going to produce something in your life that is going to be spiritually healthy for you. You, you, you want to you wanna get up early and come to church? That's an activity that will, f- that will feed your spirit. It will feed life to you. You want to go to a small group and be surrounded by a community of people. These are actions that when you do them in faith, they have spiritual repercussions. Now, you can gather with people with no faith. You can gather at a bar or at a football game or anywhere and hoop and holler and have a great time. But listen, but listen, without faith, it has no spiritual repercussions for you that lead you to Jesus. And so I, I want you to see that, that, that there, are, there are ways that, you lead, you, that something happens inside of you that draws you into the presence of God. And, and, and it's not just limited to the list we just read. But I want to highlight a few ideas in the Bible. 2 Kings 5.14, this is the story of Elisha and Naaman. Naaman was a, uh, a military officer of, a, of another country, and he came to be healed of leprosy because he heard about Elisha. So he comes to the door, and he comes to Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even meet him at the door. He sends his servant. And, and the, servant, the servant comes to the door and says, here's what you need to do. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Dip seven times, and you'll be healed. The military officer was astounded. He was like, what in the world is this? He doesn't even come to the door. And then he, he, he tells me to go wash in the Jordan River. I have cleaner rivers in my country. And so then a little tiny handmaiden, a little girl, actually says to him, if the prophet would have asked you to do something great, Wouldn't you have done it? Shouldn't you be willing to do something humble and simple? And he says, okay. And he goes and dips seven times in the Jordan. And then he comes up the seventh time. Not the fifth time. Not the sixth time. The seventh time he comes up. And the Bible records he was instantly healed of leprosy. I, I want to challenge your thinking in this way that there's, a, there's an interaction with our, our activities. The things that we do matter. The activities we engage in matter and they steer us one way or another. And so there's something really powerful that can happen in your life. Did you know that Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud to heal a guy's eyes? We tend to think that 
this spirituality that we live in is all in our heads or it's all sort of ethereal and out here. No, there's something very physical about it that we must engage in. James actually says it this way. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead, is what the scriptures say in James 2.17. Then he talks about Abraham, and verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Do you remember the first time you raised your hand in church? <laughs> Maybe it's still coming for some of you. But you, 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 you <laughs> the first time you ever raised your hand in church, and it was like, uh, this is awkward. People, they're watching me everywhere. All the attention is about you. You think everybody's watching you. Remember what your mom said, sweetie. Nobody's thinking about you as much as you're thinking about people. But, you, but there came a day when you decided you were going to not just lift your hand a little bit, but you said, I don't care what other people are thinking about me. You lifted your hand up in the air, and you started worshiping the Lord with this physicality previously unknown to you. Do you remember what happened inside your soul when you did that? something powerful that is connected there. These actions are important. And that leads us to number three, which is praising God and worshiping God is a, is a function of our mind, our will, and our emotions. Praise is not a result of your feelings. Praising God trumps your feelings. It changes your feelings. What is emotionalism? Think about this. What is emotionalism? When people accuse you of, oh, I go to that church, it's all emotionalism. No, emotionalism is when every decision is led by your emotions. Right? Like, Like what I'm talking about is you don't feel right, and yet you're willing to lift your hands. I'm I'm suggesting that God wants you to get through a bad day by lifting your voice and saying, God, I believe in who you are. I don't understand this, but I'm going to worship you in it. And something transforms you internally when you enter into this. And listen, some of you are like, it's not my personality. This just isn't my temperament, and that's okay. It's not, a, it's not about um, your temperament, though. It is about our obedience and surrendering to who God is. Remember, they're not have-tos, they're get-tos. There's something that you engage in. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is saying, I'm telling myself <laughs> to bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, almost so, and forget none of his benefits. Don't forget how many benefits he's given you. Yeah, but this problem is really bad, and this is really hard. Don't forget what God has done for you and what he wants to do for you. Worship is this moment where you decide, I'm going to do this. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. When I come into church, if I'm not feeling it, then I, just, I don't want to fake my way through it. I totally get that. But I think you're misunderstanding what hypocrisy is. Because hypocrisy is not when your actions are inconsistent with your feelings. Hypocrisy is not when your actions are inconsistent with your feelings. I mean, I make my kids take out the trash. They don't ever feel like taking out the trash. 
right? But, but integrity is doing something when you, when you don't want to, but you, you believe you should because hypocrisy is actually when you, your actions are inconsistent with your convictions. It's not when they're inconsistent with your feelings. That's just normal life. <laughs> That's just normal life. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to work. <laughs> I don't want to take out the trash. I don't want to love my husband. I don't want to do, do any of this. Ah, I don't, just get me out. That's, nor, that's human life. Hypocrisy is when you decide you're not going to act according to your convictions, what you actually believe. So the question to you today is, is God worthy of your life? Is he worthy of your worship, even on a bad day? Because worship is a declaration that God is worthy because only he can deliver the help and the hope and the healing and the solution and the provision that you and I need. All right, come on, stand up with me, and we're going to worship here for the last few minutes that we have together. The band's going to come up here. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a few moments, not, not, not at this moment, but I, I, want you to, I want you to stand here at the beginning, and then I want you to feel free to sit or to kneel or to do something that you normally don't do to worship God. I want to I challenge you and encourage you to to out of some kind of obedience to him, a desire to, a longing for his presence and a longing for his power in your life to, to be a little bit more expressive than you would normally. Choose, choose today. And if this is a bad day for you, if you're struggling, if you're fighting for something, if you're overwhelmed, I want to tell you that God will meet you right here. He's near. He's near to you, regardless of how far you lift your hands in the air. He's near. He's with you. Father, would you draw us to yourself here as we sing? Would you help us to hear your voice and know your touch? Would you give us the grace that only you can provide